to our next uh, podcast series of voices uh, for the Free Yourself Global Campaign. Today we're talking to Nadine Sukumani, who's the Executive Director of Springtide Resources in Toronto, Canada. Welcome, Nadine. Thank you. <laughs> Would you like to just uh, share with our audience a little bit about what the work is that you're doing at Springtide at the moment around the issue of domestic violence? Absolutely. Thank you, Peter. We are an organization that provides training and resources to uh, community, frontline workers, um, professional organizations around the issue of violence. Um, we engage with the term gender-based violence, and the reason for that is we see this form of violence which has traditionally been known as domestic violence as impacting many individuals within the family context um, and in within other kind of other contexts. So uh, the term gender-based violence acknowledges a wide range of folks experiencing violence at the hands of partners, as parents, of uh, in-laws, even siblings, and it just really engages with the issue of power and how power can be kind of central, a central component of where violence resides. Um, we have a couple of programs, our youth program, our immigrant and refugee program, and our women with disability and deaf women's program. So we're really, uh, it's really important to us to sort of understand the intersectionality of the identities that experience and can sometimes themselves contribute to this type of experience of violence in our society. Yeah. And so you mentioned uh, looking at, you know, power power struggles or power conflicts and this is this is an area that's particularly interesting for us in this uh, in the free yourself global campaign because we're looking at you know multi-generational examples of violence in the home. And um, there's a lot of, you know, research that correlates you know historical exposure to violence within a family and its continuation you know down the track so let let's talk about that because it's such a complex area where we're looking uh not only at uh gender um ideas around men and women but also um power roles within relationships, different kinds of abuse, whether it's physical or emotional. So let's talk a little bit about that. Sure, absolutely. Uh, well, you know, and not to sort of jump way ahead of things, but as I mentioned, we do um, some work with immigrant and refugee uh, communities. And within those communities, there's an issue that we see occurring that, again, not many people actually uh, connected to the issue of familial violence or gender-based violence, but it is an issue that's occurring across the globe, and that is around trafficking, um, or, or sorry, not trafficking as much as family violence or uh, forced marriage. And so the example I wanted to give that might actually sort of bring some attention to how gender and how um, different actors in a family unit might be involved is you know, we've heard stories, and this is, again, firsthand through our youth program and through our immigrant and refugee program, as well as some of my work on various different advisory committees around the issue of forced marriage. And what we have heard about, which is often not part of the conversation, is the experience of young men who um, might be trans or queer identified. So, you know, their family is noticing, you know, they have a lot of male friends or look at the kind of kids they're hanging around with. 
And so they acknowledge or identify, you know, even from a very young age, because as we know, trans identity and queer identities can, can kind of, we know that this is something that, that children struggle with. So, you know, you might have a teenager who's, you know, interested in, in what's going on is starting to express their identity, their gender identity in a different way. And a family member, maybe not a parent, it might be an aunt, might be a grandmother, it might be, you know, someone else in the family who's saying, yeah, you, we, can, we need to do something about this. And what we're hearing about is this young man is saying, next thing I know, I'm being introduced to a girl and I'm being told I have to marry them. Mm. And so this is something that's being done. This is a form of violence that, you know, the family is saying, if you don't do this, we're getting, you're out of the family. You know, like we're not, you, we, you're not part of our family and there's a whole kind of a level of violence that's occurring. In our youth program, we hear this repeatedly. You know, young mm. people who are disengaged from the family, they're disconnected from the family, they're kicked out of the family because of their expression of gender, their expression that's different, that's not conforming to sort of heterosexuality. So, yeah, because you know, it, is a form of, it is a form of trying to forcibly remove or uh, diminish the person's identity. Exactly. Right, and exactly. so even though it's not a form of physical violence per se in terms of a beating, it definitely mm-hmm. is still a, a violent experience of immense bullying and domination and uh, uh, ostracization. For sure. And, you know, we might have heard, some people have heard the term compulsory heterosexuality, right? So our society sort of does start, that's our starting point. Everyone is straight. Um, But when someone is sort of expressing something that's a little bit um, different, then again, right, we see where society, and in some cases family, in some cases our partners, you know, we've heard from young people, they say, I go along with it because my family is everything, you know, and they live a life, they live a life into their 20s and 30s, kind of married and feeling like married to someone of the opposite sex, feeling like they've, you know, sort of pushed away a whole part of themselves. And they, you know, and and this is, it's an interesting thing. And then what we're finding more and more young people are saying, no, you know, no, no, no. I have other people who accept me as who I am and they kind of walk away. Um, And, but that's not really a walking away, right? You're being forced away. You're being completely cut off from, from all that you've known. Yes, and the idea of ultimatum as a as a form of coercing behavior. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So that's an example I think that many people don't hear about. Um, and again, the reason I name that in the context of, of immigrant and refugee communities is we hear that story there, but I just want to name that it isn't a cultural um, othering type of experience. It is something that is happening in many, many families in, in a Western context, you know, in a Canadian context. I'm in Canada, but in a North American context, I'm sure it happens kind mm, of absolutely. everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, and that's, so that's an example of where we see, uh, you know, this issue popping up. And, you know, it can create, I think, there are certainly trickling out effects for that individual, for their family unit, um, and and it, it can have huge ramifications in one's life. And so that, I think, is an example. Yeah, I thought I would share as I was... Yeah, no, it's really important because sexual identity is a huge part of uh, who we formulate ourselves to be in the world, whether we're male or female or trans. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, 
it's interesting that you start off with that because now we can kind of move into that discussion about let's talk about identity and let's talk about in relationships, whether they're queer relationships or whether they're heterosexual relationships, the the power struggles that exist between the participants in those relationships and how that can lead to some form of violence, whether it's physical abuse, sexual abuse or emotional abuse or even economic um, domination, uh, because there are many kinds of abuse that we're, we're looking at, we're dealing with. So it's interesting as we've been through and talking to a number of um, recovered victims or survivors and uh, and and people working in this space that the idea of gender roles has slowly begun to change over time um, mm-hmm. and of course dependent upon the culture of the, the the country or the particular community we're looking at but um, definitely with the onset of um, uh, women's rights and and more development happening uh, across the planet, giving uh, rights to women, are we seeing um, an intensification of power struggle in relationships potentially as a result of that? Or do you think it's coming from something else? Because we're seeing this real grappling between partners, whether they mean men and women, women and women, men and men, for identity or power in the relationship. Maybe mm-hmm. you can talk about your experience of um, you know, shifting ideas, perhaps culturally, of men and women's roles and how that affects uh, power struggles in the relationship. Absolutely. You know, I think that that's an interesting um, piece to, to touch on in that Traditionally, we've seen or it's been sort of the lens that's been applied to this issue of violence or domestic violence in particular is a man beating a woman. And I think that we do need to hold on to that. I've had some interesting conversations recently with folks in the sector about how do we hold on to the fact that, yes, still in 2016, women make less than men. So if we're going to keep, if, if we talk about that sort of dichotomy of male-female, women earn less 67 cents to every dollar that a man does. Um, we still see uh, the glass ceiling for many women, f- women-identified folks in the employment sector. So these are kind of very liberal, mainstream ideas of why, why you know, this gender inequity still exists. Sexism is still real. What complicates that is it's not so black and white anymore, right? It isn't male and female. It is about power, as you mentioned. And Mm -hmm. this inequity can happen in different moments for different people. Um, We have women who hold a fair amount of economic power in our society. And, you know, sorry to do this in terms of the timeliness of this, but, I mean, Hillary Clinton being an example. Mm. So here's someone, a woman who holds a fair amount of power, economic and political power, in our society. But she's still experiencing levels of sexism within this public forum that she's engaged in in, this ele- in the political election south of the border. Mm. That being said, many people are saying sexism doesn't exist. It's 2016. Get over it. Mm. Right? So there's this political correctness or a sort of sense of, you know, you guys are just 
this is about a bunch of rhetoric. Let's not talk about that. Let's just look at two people running for this, you know, title, this office. And it, it's never that simple. Mm. Um, in terms of violence, it's even more complex because, as you mentioned, one of the things you mentioned was financial or economic violence. Well, a lot of people, you know, the statistic we used to uh, often sort of comes off of our tongues for those of us working in this sector was when a woman leaves a battered or violent relationship, her income drops by 40%. So here we have the intersection of poverty, right? So if you've been in a, in a relationship, there's been violence in that relationship, you've had to leave that relationship. For those of us who have worked frontline, we know it's not an easy decision to leave your partner regardless of what they've done, you know, regardless of how they've hurt have, you. Especially but when you have children add, in the mix as well. Yeah, that and then there's children. It even further. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. You have this additional piece where my entire life is changing financially my my life is changing right i'm going to go from living in this house to an apartment i'm going to be struggling to put food on the table for myself and my children 40% right that means your income has dropped by nearly half that in that piece around poverty is something that many folks don't think about right that mm. all of a sudden your life is completely different it has completely changed and, you know, then that starts to change as you talk about older folks. I know we, we've talked a little bit about um, how older folks experience violence at the hands of their children. Yes. Sometimes those same children that they actually may have not treated so well in their lifetime, you know, so the mm. tables get turned. And so I just, I guess what I'm going at is how the complexity of identity is, is just, it's different for every single person. Mm. Um, because it's and interesting, it's never... in in this series, I've talked uh, occasionally on and off about, you know, my own experience of domestic violence as a child growing up and then into my marriage, um, which mm -hmm. wasn't a physically violent marriage, but it was definitely uh, emotionally abusive. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I went into that relationship as the woman being having more education and qualifications, mm -hmm. uh, having the higher earning capacity. Um, all of these kinds of things and being quite kind of alpha female in terms of my personality, quite strong about, you know, wanting to impact things and wanting to be active. And, and, and so I don't know whether that's a gender thing uh, in my situation or whether that was just like two human beings trying to vie for power and control in the decision-making of day-to-day -day life and both feeling kind of voiceless and unheard by each other. And that the frustration uh, mounting around feeling powerless uh, such that, you know, one doesn't know what to do other than to resort to forms of emotional violence. And then perhaps for people who have less emotional resilience, possibly towards physical violence. Um, so it's kind of interesting for me to look at uh, the relationship sides of things. Uh, and I know that it is very complex because we're looking at, you know, cross-cultural impacts. We're talking at uh, different sexual identities. We're talking about, you know, the impact of male, female, traditional roles and that they're changing over time. And what is the impact then on the on the power of uh, dynamic within relationships, etc. Um, and, and, and also something that's really interesting is like there are still very traditional types of ideas about masculinity. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, 
a number of media productions have been done uh, on this idea of toxic masculinity. Um, and, you, and the possibility that with so much emphasis being put on women defining who they are and what they're, you know, what they're allowed to be in their female equality and their female expression, are the men kind of grappling with this lack of definition now about what it means to be a male and what their roles are in relationships and societies? Because I definitely feel like in my personal experience, there was a lot of feelings of emasculation going on because there was a strong woman in the mix. Do you mean there was mm -hmm. this trying mm -hmm. to vie for where are my feet, where do I have a say, where is my voice that led to the kind of abuse? So perhaps we can talk about that a little because you see different kinds in, in the work that you're doing. You're seeing different kinds of relationships across different uh, groups but all kind of Absolutely. grappling with this power thing, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, Peta, thank you for sharing your experience because I think that, um, as you mentioned, yes, I do believe there were two individuals that were involved in your relationship who are grappling, two humans grappling with the situation at hand. That being said, I think that you're right. We've been socialized as women and socialized as men. And this impacts trans folks. This impacts people who, who are, you know, might consider themselves gender nonconforming, right? They're, they're, they're the, the identities of, ma of male and female, of masculine and feminine, and the kind of characteristics of those two things come at us at every angle, you know, in our lives. So... Um, in a relationship where even though the female identified person who would be perceived as the so-called victim or might have experienced the violence in a particular way that might be considered, you know, they were the, on the receiving end of that violence, despite the economic power that their male partner or even same-sex partner might have, doesn't presuppose, I mean, economics is certainly one thing that's key to the society we live in, but they've taken on a number of characteristics of what male or masculine is about, right? So mm. some of the work that we do as well is uh, unpacking masculinity and, and talking to young men about what they learn and what they're told about what it means to be a man. And, you know, a lot of folks who've transitioned in terms of their identity as transgender, when you go from male to female, or sorry, female to male, will also talk about their grappling with being all of a sudden in this body that's perceived by society as having privilege, as having power. And so how does that impact our relationships? We're talking to young men all the time about you know, the ways in which they may speak to their partner, the way that they might um, talk to them about how they're dressed, you know. So, again, society's telling young women how to dress and what is okay and what isn't okay, and we're talking about terms like slut-shaming, and, you know, schools have all of these policies about, you know, no spaghetti straps and no skirts that are so, you know, too mm. short and things like that. And we're saying, why? Why is society telling young women that you need to dress better, then the young men are taking on that. They're telling their partners, oh, you need to not dress like that, otherwise, you know, you're asking for it. And that, again, is a way in which power can be uh, what I call sort of disseminated or, or sort of placed 
into the to the 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 language and the actions of 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 people so how that translates to relationships regardless of whether you know i've worked in frontline in shelter and i've had lawyers and doctors call crisis lines and say i need to leave my partner they leave and you know there's a lot of implications professionally for them um they may not come to shelter they may check into a hotel instead of coming to shelter mm. right they're because they have more economic means to do it yeah absolutely exactly right they, but it doesn't mean the experience of violence is any different and it the impact on their on, on their lives is exact i feel like it is it's not exactly the same but it has you know that's where i think that folks can say they can look at another person and say i've been through this and that's where that solidarity can reside and so um you know i like the term survivor right folks who who've experienced violence who can say i'm a survivor i've survived i've been through this and one of the other things we do that's really important is again talk about that kind of continuum of violence and sort of say well just be you know emotional abuse on one end is is can have the same impact in our lives as the physical abuse on the other end. Oh, absolutely. Working, yeah. You know, because it can lead to working, the complete eradication of self-esteem, which leads exactly. to depression, which leads to suicide and all of these other mm. health issues that we're seeing for sure it's it's yeah. hugely impactful. Um, for sure. One of the things I remember so vividly was um a, a client that I was working with, uh, speaking to her on a crisis line for many, many months, just talking to her and supporting her, and and she was going through an incredible amount of emotional abuse, control by her partner, just couldn't really. All of our conversations are around just her trying to kind of get her feet on the ground and say, "I'm not making this up. It's real, right?" Mm -hmm. Like you know, a lot of this. And she said, "I wish he would just hit me." Mm. You know, so she said the way that she was experiencing the violence, she was even sort of people around her were saying, what's wrong with you? He's a lovely guy. Like, you know, mm. what can I get over it? He's not you're making this up. It's all in your head. And our conversations were simply me validating and listening and saying, you're, you know, I believe you. And that, like you said, it's something that you need to hear in order for you to sort of be able to eventually make that decision to leave or not, right? And again, not everyone does leave. I worked with some senior women in a program that I was involved in a, f a number of years ago, and uh, four of the six women all waited for their husbands, their abusers, to leave. To, mm. Sorry, to pass away. Yeah, to leave their bodies. <laughs> you know, and I'll never forget one of the women. I mean, you know, she said, my life began at the age of 67 wow. when my husband passed away. She goes, my life began. Wow. Right? And, 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 and I thought, wow, right? Like, how mm. powerful is that yeah. to have that? And she was absolutely gloriously happy in every day that she was able to step out of her small really modest apartment and just enjoy freedom that was yeah. how she described it absolutely know? and it's such a long period of time to wait to experience oneself mm -hmm. being safe and free in the world uh, from violence and and I think that draws us back to this point of you know when we have interviewed uh, more elderly uh, people around this issue it seems that you know back in the 50s or earlier it was seen as ordinary you know this kind of abuse whether it be physical or emotional was just part of the deal of the job of the wife mm -hmm. and uh, was accepted and 
you know, one lady shared with me her story about having four young children and having to sneak them on a bus to travel across Australia, across the Nullarbor Plain uh, to, to South Australia uh, to, to escape this really emotionally and physically violent man who had many problems with substance abuse. Uh, and she sat on the floor of her mother's house crying and her mother said, you get back on that bus and go back to your husband and you work this out and fulfill your duty as a wife. Yeah. And she put the mm-hmm. put her daughter back on the bus with all the little kids and sent them back into the house uh you know where there's violence and so now you know she's in her 60s and the the idea of what is acceptable in terms of treatment of uh people in a relationship is now changing and so there's less tolerance especially you know coming from our younger generation and even our older generation are acknowledging now well you know it was okay then but i can see that it's not okay yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. so that's part of this like redefinition of, of of gender roles and identity in terms of these kinds of relationships mm-hmm yeah, I mean, I think that that is happening, that there is a sense of, I mean, there's a lot more information that you can gather or access uh, about how violence might kind of permeate a relationship, a family relationship in our families. However, you know, even yesterday I was chatting with um, a colleague, and, and one of the things she talked about was even though we know that it's not okay, we're still programmed intergenerationally about how we should be in relationship mm. or how or what our role is as a, as a, as a daughter or as a, a mother or, you know, and, and so I, I agree that, that, you know, we know it's not okay to hit someone else, right? We know there's certain things that are pretty clear cut. But I think it's, again, going back to these pieces around emotional abuse and, and control and consent and, you know, um, that, that sort of are starting to pop up in ways that aren't so clear. You know, so when you're talking about young people, for example, you know, and you can even go online and read about this is something I've been interested in. It's like, so in a relationship, is, should you be giving your partner the code to your phone, right? So we have these devices at our fingertips now that, mm-hmm. you know, is that, is that, is that what we should be doing? And, and there's a lot of, there's a bit of a difference of opinion. Well, if you trust your partner, then you shouldn't have to share your phone code with them, you know, and things like that. And then other people think, yeah, but in a, in a, in a trusting, honest, healthy relationship, why not? You know, let's mm. share your code, share your passwords. There's nothing to hide, right? Mm. And I think that, you know, what, what young people are getting are mixed messages about this. You know, um, for me as a parent of a teenager, I say to him, I sometimes I'll sort of hear him talking to, to a friend on the phone and I'll say, hey, who are you talking to like that? He goes, oh, just to my friend. And I said, wait, we don't talk to anyone like that. You know, like that, that tone or that language, that's just not okay. And he's like, oh, mom, I know that. And, you know, he'll say to his friend, oh, there's my mom, that feminist or whatever, you know. And, <laughs> and I'm like, no, I think this is a universal thing, sweetheart. This is how we don't talk to anyone like that, you it's know. And, respect, yeah. Yeah, that piece about respect. But what what I think is, again, happening, there's a sort of sense of, well, 
you know, kids are kids. They can talk to each other that way. It's okay. Um, but, yeah, no, we don't want to talk to our colleagues that way or our partners that way. And so there's this sort of, like, mixed messaging that's happening that I wonder about in terms of, and it's not about right and wrong as much as it's about trying to figure out your place and your sort of way. Mm. So um, where I'm getting at with that is you mentioned, um, you know, where it's almost like where do we get where do we get this information from? Is that as my colleague was saying, we get it sometimes from our families and our family structures are the folks where we kind of look around. Well, when you have unhealthy dynamics in a family, then I might leave my family and move on to my new relationship or my new family, and I will just keep replicating that. Mm. And I've never had anyone tell me that's not okay. Mm. You know, and so um, that's sort of similar to sort of sexual abuse and molestation, all of those things, it comes down to sort of the family rules, the unwritten sort of, well, in our house that was okay. It didn't, it was... You know, even though I kind of knew it wasn't okay, but I, it was what we did in our house. You know, it was kind of yeah. like how our family went all out did, and it continues and it continues. Where do we break that cycle, or where do we learn? How do we learn that? Oh no, actually, there's another way to do this. Yeah, that's you know what I think better. Ta- yeah, absolutely. And what I think you're touching on, Nadine, is this like there's this really gray area. You know, and even as an adult, I struggle to find this for myself sometimes between, you know, what is, you know, my freedom to choose to do, say, you know, with my body, for instance, versus, you know, what are my rights around uh, not having people exploit it? Do you know what I mean? So a a practical example is like uh, many young kids these days are, um, you know, in relationship and within the so-called safety of that relationship, you know, making sex tapes together or taking, Mm -hmm. you know, risque photographs, but it's within the context of that relationship, right? So then there's this implicit agreement uh, or maybe even explicit (laughs) that they're not going to share that content with anybody. And so there's this idea of like, I'm a woman, I'm free to do with my body what I choose, I'm free to show it to whomever I want. And and I agree with that. But then there's Mm -hmm. also this thing about like, well, in, as far as I'm concerned with respect to my own boundaries and respect to taking responsibility for my own safety, should I be making those kinds of choices as well? Like, <laughs> am I giving mm-hmm. away some of my own power by um, enabling people to record, you know, and then have in their possession things of me that I may not want out in the broader community? Do you know what I mean? So there's this real kind of... I don't know. I think I think it's kind of a gray area. Like, where is the line between having this freedom of choice, but also honoring your own power and boundaries, or even knowing where they are in the first place? I agree. I agree a hundred percent. Well, you know, I think uh, we have we have the um, benefit of experience behind us. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, when we look at young people making these decisions, you're right. We want to support them and, and encourage them to be free, really um, take ownership of their their bodies and their lives and just sort of go, hey, yeah, I can do what I want to do and have some autonomy. At the same time, I know in my life I have engaged in some of those things and I may have been, you know, burned for lack of 
a better word, <laughs> because the relationship has ended, right? Or, yeah. And I don't know, you know, what they may have done with those, those things. They might have been agreed upon within the context of this consensual relationship, but we know in real life that could end up on Facebook or, you know, yeah, it yeah. could end up anywhere. Yeah. And, and, and that's also something that's happened to real life real people. people. Like exactly. That, the the you whole know? emergence of revenge uh, porn yeah. is, 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 is a big deal now. And mm-hmm. with the mm-hmm. Italian, Italian model recently taking her own life because of, you know, an act of revenge porn basically and uh, her sex tape being turned into memes that went viral and you just can't Mm -hmm. escape that kind of shame now you know it's different i think uh you know also monica Lewinsky gave a really incredible ted talk about this idea of shame you know and Mm -hmm. her having made certain decisions or mistakes when she was in her 20s but then it going out into the public and you know that was really before we had internet in the way that we have today but because she happened to be with a high profile public figure obviously her um her choices were made very public and she was very publicly shamed because of it but that intensity of shame is like possible for all of us now just with the availability of information and the availability to sh- you know the access to sharing it globally or receiving it globally so I think that's even made much more challenging this idea of like, how do I have an open and trusting relationship? And then how do I also set healthy boundaries and ensure that I'm safe? Or, (laughs) you know, how Mm -hmm. do I, how do I give my partner the benefit of the doubt? Because I want to hope for a future with this person, but kind of, there's this old saying that, um, uh, one of my mother's husbands once said was like, I trust, but I tie my camel to the post kind of thing. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, and, sure. and, and so it's a really kind of gray area. And then, and then that can even lead to like the blurriness around like, what is trust? What is boundaries? What is healthy? What is unhealthy? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. making it this kind of really j- tricky area around power, you know, which yeah. can lead to then emotional abuse, physical abuse, and, and what may be perceived as abusive for one person is not necessarily perceived as abusive for another. Mm-hmm. You know, where, where, you know, so you take parenting, for instance, someone might see autocratic parenting styles where just do as you're told. Don't yeah. argue, don't ask questions. I'm the parent, just do as you're told. Um, and then the shutting down of the voice of the child as a result. Mm-hmm. that's still you know you're right. potentially you're seen sure. as a valid form of parenting right and then you have this other more responsive style of parenting where it's okay share with me what's going on open up create a safe space da 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 but one doesn't see necessarily it as abusive like the other may do you know what i mean and mm-hmm. so even those definitions well, are challenging for sure and it is about perception it's about what we've been programmed with and 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 it's sometimes it's about that threshold, right? So if you grew up in a really abusive parenting household, abusive meaning you know maybe physical abuse and sort of like the kinds of stories we might hear about on the news, your decisions as you become a parent are quite different, and and it may not it's certainly not going to look like what you did as what you experienced as well, a child. Well, not necessarily, Nadine. I've seen plenty of people who have had, like, True. awful, uh, yeah, <laughs> abusive, and then they parent exactly the same way. <laughs> but they may also, you know, you may have another parent who's looking at you and saying, that's incredibly abusive. You can't speak to your child like that, right? And so we're always, there's always eyes on us. And I think the other 
thing that comes to mind for me around that is um, also the sort of institutions and systems that are in place. So to your point, what we do experience here is if you've had, um, if you've been parented, you know, perhaps your family was involved with child protective services because of the kinds of things you experienced as a child. What we see up, you know, in, in, in Canada is often families will be engaged with child protective services for generations, mm, right? Yes. So you now are becoming a parent and they will be involved in your life because you were in the system as a child. Mm. And so, you know, and this disproportionately affects poor people, racialized people, um, you know, certain communities will say, well, you know, they're in our lives in Canada, we know for a fact um, indigenous communities and Aboriginal communities talk about systems of policing and child protective services being involved in their families generation after generation after generation. And there's no understanding of the history behind that and why, you know, they were, as a, as a community, experienced violence at the hands of, of the government and police for many, many, many centuries, right, for mm. many, many years. Mm. And so, yes, of course there's going to be these remnants of that violence that still exist in their family units. Absolutely, and so, yeah. And even, you know, when and, look, and even when we're looking at our children who we may think are being brought up in a non-violent family structure, you know, mm-hmm. like your son talking quite aggressively or however he's talking to his friend, like where does that come from? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like when he's not having that at home, is it from external sources? Is it like this social pressure of what it means to be a boy or a man? Like uh, the film that was made, The Mask You Live In, which was a yeah. really incredible film about this mm-hmm. idea of masculinity that gets passed. I mean, there's so many variable factors that impact this uh, For way sure. of communicating aggressively, violently, etc. So I just mm-hmm. want to, you know, we're getting close to our time. So I just, sure. you know, wanted to draw, you know, because it's really important, this idea of power in relationships and how it leads to, well, has a big part to play in whether violence exists or not in the home. And, you know, in, in, in December last year, China made it uh, illegal or a cri- uh, recognised it as a criminal act, uh, domestic violence for the first time. And they included in that emotional abuse or emotional violence. Mm-hmm. Now, when we're talking about emotional violence and these kind of like blurry lines between, um, you know, what we consider to be good parenting, poor parenting, <laughs> what we consider mm-hmm. to be freedom of choice versus healthy boundary setting, all this different all this- kind of stuff, the grey stuff. How do you think we control emotional abuse? Because generally when it's physical, we can see it even if the abuser is smart and hides the impact of the body to areas that are normally underclothed so his partner is not walking down the street covered in bruises and people ask questions, right? But there mm-hmm. is some physical evidence. It's not as clear when it's emotional abuse. So how do we, how do you think we work with this now that it's starting to enter into like the legal legal domain? Yeah, I you know I, it is difficult. <laughs> mm. Again, just as many of the things we've talked about, you know, we see different behaviors and actions and words. Um, through different lenses. So in some households, cursing and, you know, using sort of so-called, you know, vulgar or offensive language is something that 
you know, we grew up with that. That's how my parents spoke to each other. It wasn't seen as, that wasn't seen as abuse. I didn't think that was abuse. Mm. And then when we point out to, to a survivor, name calling is a form of abuse, right? Being, yeah. you know, being called names and like, mm. well, that's just something I, I'm used to. I didn't know. And sort of a bit of, again, about that threshold. From a criminal perspective, I think it gets very challenging because we, we, in the sense that the law is the law, and they have particular parameters. So I'm not familiar with what China has put forward. But in terms of, um, you know, in Canada, one of the resources that we provide that talks about emotional abuse under the criminal code, they talk about um, when remarks become violent, threatening, when one's safety is at risk. So I think it is tricky because it may not take into account some of those other things like the name calling, the verbal abuse, the, mm. the shaming, the ways in which one might describe how they feel. I know that often um, f- from a policing or, or cri- criminal kind of charging type of perspective, they'll say, well, do you feel safe? Are they going mm. to harm you? Have they threatened you, right? Mm. And you're right. Someone who, but that's always uh, putting it back into the physical domain again. It is. You know, it is. And, you know, and I, think abusers, I think abusers, as you said, are yeah. often quite good at, at not hiding. crossing that line, exactly. right? And, so and, they, and they're also, able to sort of skirt the law to some degree. Absolutely. So I think it's challenging. I think it is very challenging when we start to name the leaders of you know, this movement as the people who are placing it under a criminal law or legal context. Mm. Um, Again, unless we do start to find examples of convictions and examples of law that start to embody Mm. what true emotional abuse looks like, the impacts, you know, the post-traumatic stress, um, all of those pieces, I think people are starting to talk about it. Researchers are starting to engage with it. But I do think the law is a bit behind when it comes to this. Mm. Okay, well, thank mm-hmm. you so much. It's such an interesting topic. And I know for me personally, I could talk about it all day because <laughs> I find it... <laughs> I think the, we could. Yeah, <laughs> the intricacies of uh, the psychology behind this and, and how we resolve it and... Um, you know, uh, at a global level is, is such a challenge. But I really value your insights and your incredible work that you're doing in Toronto, in Nadine. Toronto, and I thank Nadine. you so much for being so part of being this. Part. Um, maybe um, you can share, maybe share the web address of address? Springtide? Springtide? Sure. Yes, it's www.springtideresources.org, O-R-G. Or you can just Google Springtide Resources. Uh, I think we're the only one on the web. Okay, great. Okay. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. And Absolutely. Doing some great Thank work. you. And thanks for getting behind this campaign, Nadine. We really appreciate you supporting us. Absolutely. Uh, 100%. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you, Peter. Great. Bye.